Amen. Well, guys, we hope you have a Bible. If you do, would you grab hold of it? And we are in 2 Corinthians. Excited to be there this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this, and we're hoping you have a Bible. You're heading there as well. If you don't have a Bible, right in front of you, uh, there's, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Uh, you can also open it up an electronic device one way or another, but we are just longing that it would not just be a space where your mind wanders or, you, or you're not listening, but there's a sense that you would hear it and see it. There's power in that, power in, in, in that, power in the Word of God, and so we're definitely wanting to hold that before you, so hoping you have one. Uh, that's true online or in the overflow as well. Hoping you have a Bible, inviting you to be there with us. Well, as we're going to aim into this and wanting to hear from God, let's take a moment and ask that God would communicate His Word to us. I'm going to pray for that. Hope you would as well. Just ask that God would make it known to you, that He would help you to understand what He has for you specifically in the midst of this. Father, right here, we just come and we think about the power of your word, the authority, the rightness, Lord, that everything you say is good because you're good. And out of your perfection, out of your rightness, you have given us everything we need. And Lord, we have need. We have need that you would open up to us your word and that, Lord, I believe in your faithfulness you could do that today. And it would be in that space that though we're together, we would hear you talking to us. Through the authority and power of your word, would you make it so? By the power of your spirit right now, help us to hear what you have for us. Give us ears to hear and and just work that good in us that you have for us. We ask for it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is probably true that the least popular emotion that you could ever go through is that emotion of sorrow. You know, you think about all the different emotions and the different categories that would find itself there and much of them, you know, whether it be anguish or anger or disgust, hey, they're not always great spaces to be, but hands down, probably the least just pleasurable or desirable of all the emotions is to be sad. Uh, to find yourself met with sadness. I mean, it would never work, right? If you were, you know, putting together some, you know, place of, uh, of business and said, hey, come here, we'll make you sad. You'd be like, what? Never going to go. You know, like that just doesn't, I'm never going to choose, you know, that as, as a space. And yet there is a good sorrow, a good grief, if you will, a godly sorrow. In fact, Jesus would say it where he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is a pretty incredible th- phrase that Jesus said, hey, this would be really good. This would be blessed or literally almost, oh, how happy or oh, how good it would be, how right it would be to be in a place of sorrow, to be in a place of mourning. And yet that's a place that we want to gaze at this morning, to try to understand what that would look like, what it would be to have godly sorrow. And, and very specifically, what's being described for us in our text. Well, before we see that sorrow, we need to take a moment and notice what's causing it, what's bringing this conflict and sorrow into the lives that are there. Join me as we begin our section in verse 8. He says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. 
For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Pausing there. So we jump into this, and one of the things that we need to just kind of quickly catch ourselves up on that's been a part of this entire letter of 2 Corinthians is that Paul has confronted sin within the lives of the church there in Corinth, and, and that has brought sorrow. It probably would be really helpful if I just pause for a moment and say, hey, as we think about this place of confronting sin, hey, it's not a bad thing. It's a right thing that we would do so at times. It's a right place of being able to confront it. Now, that's not the subject matter here, so we won't spend but just a moment on it, but I will give you one of my favorite verses that I use in my own life about this, uh, that we think about this right space of, of, of confronting sin. It's in 1 John where it says, if anyone sees his brother sending a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I, and I do not say that he should pray about that. It's a great little verse that just in a nutshell says this, hey, you're living in a fallen world, and everybody around you right here in this room is struggling. There's not anybody that isn't doing battle with sin. There's not anybody that isn't, you know, fighting with those temptations. And so if you're going to be around people, you're going to notice it. Here's what the deal is. Hey, if it's not a rebellious a, a lifestyle choice that they're making that's taking them down a wrong course, you should just pray for them. You don't need to confront them. You, need to, you don't need to, you know, look at somebody who's having a bad day and say, well, you know, you seem like you're losing your temper a little bit today. You know, I just thought I would confront you. Hey, it doesn't need to be there. That would be unkind and even condemnation. Hey, just as, as you notice it, you could just pray for them. Like, Lord, they're having a hard day. I'm just praying for them. Just praying you'd be there. Be grace and mercy. with. Them. That's a great thing to do. But there are spaces where it's not just a struggle, but somebody's made a choice. And they've made a choice that's got them on a road that's leading to destruction. And now it's no longer a space that you have just the privilege of just praying for them. Really, there is a godly space where you would lovingly say to somebody, hey, what you're doing is not a good space. Do you understand the road you're on? Do you, do you see it? And I love you enough to speak into your life. That's exactly what Paul has done here. Uh, there, there was sin taking place in the church that's there in Corinth. And so he has confronted that. And he did it by writing him a letter. Again, you see it there as our, our verse begins there. It says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, <laughs> I wrote you a letter that would confront this. If you've been with us again in 2 Corinthians, maybe you'll remember because we talked about this early on. There is a good amount of debate among Bible students if the letter that he's speaking about is the letter of 1 Corinthians or if there's another letter that isn't in included in the canon of Scripture. Hey, you know, I'll let people who are smarter than me, you know, kind of just wrestle that through. I will say this. It could definitely be 1 Corinthians. It could definitely be 1 Corinthians because he actually did exactly that. Uh, you know, we have it in 1 Corinthians 5 that he was writing to this church and he told them, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual morality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. I mean, it was brokenness. I mean, here's this, you know, kind of incestuous kind of thing taking place and this really weird thing, and they're making it okay. And Paul writes to him and says, you guys are puffed up, and you've not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. It's like your, your, your response is all to get it wrong. You're, you're prideful about this. You're arrogant. You're kind of like, aren't we a loving church? Aren't we just kind? You know, we let people get away with terrible things. He says, no, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this. And so he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Hey, without a long story in this, this is church discipline. This is that place of saying, hey, we can't treat you as a believer. You know, you're living a lifestyle outside of the faith. You're living a lifestyle that's outside of this. He says, hey, you need to do that. So it would seem that it's very, very possible that that's what this is speaking about, that they were doing this. They were allowing such sin in the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes a letter, maybe again, 1 Corinthians. Now, one of the interesting things about this letter of 2 Corinthians is it takes us a little bit behind the scenes. We've talked about that a number of times, but it's just one of those places that we recognize you can't always do that. You, you can't always unpack all of your heart. You know, there's just a space that, that doesn't always that work that way out. In fact, in the majority of Paul's letters, you don't get a chance to see this. Second Corinthians is unique because not only does it let us see what he did, it takes us behind the scenes of what's taking place in his heart. And the fascinating part of this story is he struggled with this. I mean, he is struggling with this. Again, you just got to picture it there as he writes it out there. He says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, if only for a little while. Now, I don't know if this is going to do anything to anybody else. I love this. I love that he does this. I mean, because, you know, if you read through 1 Corinthians, you're like, you know, Paul looked over at their sin. He's like, you guys just need to deal with that. Kick him out of the church, you know, and you're like, man, he's so bold, you know, and he's so, man, just righteous in this whole place. Uh, And yet, if you've ever done that, if you've ever had to have an opportunity to talk to somebody about their sin, maybe you would be able to be like the Apostle Paul, honestly, and say, I don't regret it. No, I do regret it. No, I don't regret it. No, I actually do regret it. Why did I do that? I shouldn't. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's glorious just to recognize the the, the realness behind this whole space and the struggle that that even the apostle had in confronting sin, in doing that. He just lets us know, hey, that was a hard thing for him to do. See, part of the problem with confronting sin when God confronts it in us, when we confront it in others, is it really is going to go one of two directions. It's either going to make people mad or it's going to make them sad. There really is no other real emotion to it. I mean, yeah, some people are be ambivalent and say like they don't care, but it's really kind of more of a function of madness. Like, I don't want to, I'm rejecting everything you have to say. And sometimes it's both, and that's exactly what happened, by the way. As Paul wrote this letter, their initial response was to push back and be angry at him, and it created just a, a, a break in their relationship. And Paul dealt with this back in chapter 2 of this letter, if you want to go back and read that. But now they're beginning to kind of move back and restore this, but he just recognized it made him sad. I mean, he writes this letter, and, and their sorrow kind of crushed in upon them, and he's recognizing that. He's recognizing that sorrow that's there, and yet in this, he wants us to help us understand that that sorrow, it wasn't that he was happy that it was that way. It only lasted a little while, but there was a good place where the sorrow landed. Hey, why don't you notice it there in verse 9? He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you are made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So he gives us a contrast. He says, I I, I recognize this made you sad. 
I recognize this whole thing made you feel bad, and yet it's this place in that space, he lets us know there's really two kinds of sorrow that would respond to this. And he gives us a picture between what he calls godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. As we gaze on this, as we try to figure this through for a moment, I want to invite you into it in a way that I want to tell you this has more bearing on your life than you might immediately recognize. I want you to understand as we think about this, there's probably not a day in your life that this hasn't, doesn't have some effect into the way that you're facing your life. And there's definite seasons where it's even more so. And to be able to know and see the difference between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow, it'll change things. It would change things in your life. So in just inviting you to it here this morning that right now, in case you're just looking at this thinking, you know, Jim, I don't know what this has anything to do with me. I'm not that excited about Paul having to confront their sin. I don't really want to do that. I don't want people to do that to me. I mean, how does this whole thing work? And does this really affect my life? It does. And right now, I'm just again inviting you to see it. And so we need to think through these two things, godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. What makes them different? What makes them that which we need to see? Well, it is what they do. That's kind of what he tells us. It is what they accomplish. Notice there in verse 10, for godly sorrow produces, it accomplishes something. It reproduces repentance leading to salvation. It it does good in our lives. It's a source of repentance goes on to say, you know, but not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world, it produces something different. It produces death. It produces death. So two very different things, repentance that leads to salvation and death. In one sense, when we look about this, we're talking about the very difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. We're talking about those who become followers in Jesus. It is through the road of repentance. Jesus preached the gospel and called us to repent. It's the, it's the singular message that invites through the whole thing. And so in one sense, when we think about repentance, it is this road to salvation. And there is another road that's leading towards eternal death. And it's big in one sense just to think about it in those big movements. You know, sometimes it helps to have kind of a poster child for this. And if there is, it's been well reported that you can think about the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas, yeah, just think it through for a moment. Both of them fail Jesus. Both of them fail Jesus on the day that he goes to the cross. Both of them find themselves sad. Peter weeping uh, as, as he denies Jesus like Jesus said he would do. But his, his weeping is going to turn him. He's going to come back to Jesus. Jesus is going to restore him. In fact, Jesus prays for him in that regard. Hey, when you've gotten back up, I I have a plan for you. I'm not done with you. And and Peter's a good model of how sorrow can, can do good in our lives. Judas is the poster child for it being bad. He betrays Jesus. Betrays Jesus, sells him. Uh, over to the the, the Pharisees when he's going to the cross. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, that Jesus had been condemned, he was remorseful. He was sorrowful. 
I mean, just the, the sorrow of what, what he'd done, the sadness of what he'd done, had done hit him. He brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders that they paid him to betray Jesus. And he's like, man, I, I feel bad. <laughs> I feel really, really bad that I did this here. You can have the money back. I, I, I just I don't want it, you know, in many days. They refuse it. And then it just tells us that he threw uh, the pieces of silver into the temple and he departed and then he went and hanged himself. He literally kills himself. He literally commits suicide. And we gaze on this, and again, it's just one of those pictures of that. We know what Jesus said, that he's a son of perdition. This, this is not just a momentary thing. It was really a defining picture of, of where, really where his life landed. And, and so in one sense, we want to look at this and say there, there's sorrow, one that's going to produce life and one that's going to produce death. Before we go past this and talk about it, how it affects every single one of this, I would be probably remiss if I didn't just take a moment and say, I just want to make sure you see it. I just want to make sure that you understand it. We think about something as destructive and horrible as suicide and begin to just want to understand it's a big deal. That we, we think about in our world uh, right now, there are over 800,000 people every year in our world that commit suicide, take their life by it. That means literally every 40 seconds, Every 40 seconds in our world, somebody is committing suicide. But for every suicide committed, there are 20 that are tried. That would mean that every two seconds, every two seconds, somebody in our world is getting to this place of hopelessness and despair where they find no other hope but to take their life. I mean, when you put it in the stats, that means that the suicides every year, they're more than, than in homicides and wars put together. I mean, suicide's literally, you know, as a number, it's bigger than that. Now, that gets even more when you understand that for young people between 15 and 19 years old, it's the second leading cause of death. That that space in life just where, where, where so much crashes in on them. And so I just get to take a moment right now and just tell you, hey, that's not a good thing. And, and I don't, I hope that nobody in this room, I hope nobody hearing my voice, I hope nobody, you know, hearing this online right now, that you're actually contemplating taking your life, but it gives me reason to just make sure you understand this. That is not a good thing. That's not a godly sorrow. That's a worldly response to sorrow. It's a worldly response that is destructive, and it does good just to call it out and say, hey, if you're struggling with that, we just want you to understand we recognize it's a big deal for some, but you're not alone, and, and we would love to be a part of that and helping you and rescuing uh, wherever that is. Please don't let that sorrow ever do that in your life. It's destructive, and, and we just don't want it to be that case with anybody here. Okay, so we've said that, and again, it's important that we said that, and again, I, I want to just tell you, if that's you, we love you, and we want to be a part of that, but let's come back and understand this is a bigger deal than just in those spaces. Because maybe you sit here and you're thinking, Jim, that's not me. I mean, I'm not that person. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being drawn that place. So does this have nothing to do with me? I mean, do I just get to read past these verses right now and say this doesn't affect my life? No, that's not true. Because this is not just about taking your life. And it's not just about being a Christian and not a Christian, though today we would invite you to Christ and invite you to godly repentance. It is about the way that you deal with this sorrow. 
it'd be well understood that we could think about it that in our lives, probably two of the words that the Bible would use that aren't used here in this text, but I think it is what it's talking about, and so I'll just toss them out for help, that in one sense, it's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction and condemnation. Wow, okay. God give me help. Because I'm just telling you, it's a big deal. It affects your life every day. And if you can figure out the difference, if you can discern the difference between what it is to know conviction over condemnation, you are going to be helped. If you're not, if you can't figure this out, it's going to leave you in a world of confusion. I think about it this way. We think about conviction, and the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, Jesus saying, has come, and He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It says the Spirit of God comes, and He convicts us. He convicts us of what's wrong, and He convicts us of what's right. He tells us, hey, that's wrong, that's right. We get convicted by the Word of God. We get convicted by the conscience that God has given to us. There's a good space, a godly space, where conviction is something that God wants for our life. But the devil, he's in different business. It tells us in Revelation 12 that the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, like this is what he's doing all across the entire planet. He's the accuser of our brethren who accuse them before our God day and night. Hey, this is a fascinating passage that we're not going to unpack it in all of its entirety. I want you to hear it now. It's a passage that's almost looking from a prophetic lens from the future back to today and just says, here's what Satan has been doing every single day. Day and night, he has been bringing condemnation. Day and night, he has been seeking to do that. And so here's the window I want to make sure you understand. This is what he does in your life. Sometimes people talk about, hey, we're, we're praying that, you know, Jesus teaches us to pray, hey, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the devil. We should pray that. So what, what are you praying for? You know, when you think about Satan's work in your life, what is it that, that that means? You know, do you view it as some kind of magic thing, as if somehow, you know, he's, you know, or, you know forcing things? No, his greatest tool in your life, his greatest one that he will use every single day is condemnation. And it's just worth understanding, that's not of God. In fact, it tells us in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not us. If you're in Christ, that's not us. That, that we're no longer under that space of condemnation, that it should never land into our lives. And so one of the great places of discernment in the Christian life is to be able to tell the difference. To be able to tell the difference when the Holy Spirit and God's word is convicting you versus when Satan is condemning you. And I'm just telling you again, it's a daily battle. If Satan is doing this every day, and he is, then your space is to be able to recognize the difference in your life, in you, to be able to say, look at something and say, that's condemnation. And that's conviction. Sometimes it really is one or the other, that you are going through something in your life and you're able to look at it and think, hey, this is all condemnation. This is all Satan. Other times you'll be able to look, no, this is conviction. Like, this is conviction. God's convicting me. The majority of the time, this is where it gets really hard, is they happen side by side. Satan's pretty smart. Uh, he knows that as the Holy Spirit's convicting you, he'll try to bring in condemnation. 
So part of the, the space is being able to look at it almost through brokenness and recognize if you can think about it, if it helps even to have it as a picture, it's like you're holding up two mirrors, two broken mirrors that are exposing you. And the question is, okay, which one am I supposed to be looking at? Which is condemnation? Which is conviction? Which is of God? Which isn't of God? Well, it is what it's producing. One is producing repentance and one is producing death. Hey, I put it to you this way. I'll throw it up here in a, a simple kind of bullet point kind of thing. Hey, when it's conviction, it comes from the Holy Spirit. When it's condemnation, it's coming from the enemy. When it's conviction, it leads you to repentance. It's drawing you away from sin. It's drawing you to what's right. When it's condemnation, it leads to self-hatred. It leads to a death. It leads to, to feelings of just, you know, woe is me. I'm terrible. There's no hope for me. When it's conviction, it's leading to forgiveness. It's offering to us like, hey, come this direction and I can forgive. When it's condemnation, it offers guilt. When it's conviction, it's running to Jesus for grace. When it's condemnation, it's running from God in shame. When it's conviction, it brings joy and peace and freedom. When it's condemnation, it brings sin and regret. And this is at war in your life. This is just not anybody in the room that you're sitting there going, that's interesting. I never wrestle with that. Not me. That's not true. You might wrestle with it a little differently than somebody around you, but you are wrestling with it because the devil's real and he's at work and he is accusing you. He is, he is seeking to bring destruction into your life. And so what's important for you is to be able to recognize, hey, that's him. I'm going to resist the devil. I'm going to resist what he's saying because that's only leading to death, but I'm going to embrace what God's doing in my life. I want to embrace that good space. And so it becomes a place that every day there's a place that we're needing to do that. So as we gaze on this, again, we're seeing a contrast. One is producing death, one is producing repentance. And as God unpacks it for us here, now we're gonna focus just on the good side. We could continue flipping back and forth and saying, okay, this is good and this is bad, and you can make some of that on your own, but just the way that he wants us to think it through, he wants us just to think through this godly sorrow. What does it do? What does it look like? How does that actually play out in our lives? Well, let's notice it. Again, just picking it up in verse 9. It says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow, it's redemptive. It leads us to salvation. It brings us to God rescuing us. Again, it can save your soul. I mean, if you're outside of Jesus, it's repentance that would recognize you're a sinner in need of grace that would draw you to Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, repentance is actually a word that is spoken more to Christians than to people who aren't yet followers of Jesus in the Bible. That we are meant to be a people of repentance. It's we, we live a lifestyle of repentance. And repentance is always about rescuing us. It's always about saving us, pulling us up out of sin, bringing life to us, doing good in us. It's always about that. So Paul would say, hey, I, I want you not to lose anything of what God has for you. It's a place where it would do that. And it's that that we'd look and say, boy, that kind of sorrow is not something that we should regret. That kind of sorrow isn't something that we would look upon and say, that's a bad thing. No, it's a really good thing. So what does it look like? What does that actually look like? Well, he gives it to us as he continues. He says, well, I want you to see it. Verse 11, observe this. I want you to see what it looks like. 
Observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. So we just invite you to see it, and I'm inviting you to see it. I mean, with your, with your eyes, but with your mind's eye, with your thoughts, what does it look like to have a good sorrow in contrast to a bad sorrow? What is it, godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow? Well, he gives us seven things that are probably true every time. We actually have godly sorrow every time. Now, we don't always kind of, you know, see each set of the seven steps, though they're probably always there. They're probably always a part of it, and yet here he's inviting you to see it. So let's just give simple definitions uh, that'll walk this through and hopefully help us understand the difference. What does God's godly sorrow do? Well, the first thing it does is it creates a diligence. It has the idea of a haste, uh, of a desire that, you know, boy, I got to deal with this. It creates something that is, uh, you know, serious and this place of saying, I need to do this. If we were to use the contrast, right, it would have the idea of somebody thinking, yeah, this isn't really a good thing in my life. One of these days, I'm going to get around to dealing with that. You know, someday I probably should really try to control my temper or deal with my tongue. And yeah, someday. That's not repentance. Godly sorrow makes it where it's like, this is wrong. Like, I need to deal with this. It motivates us. It moves us to do that. That draws us into a place that we're longing to clear ourselves, to be made right. And it's an interesting term that would throw it in, in really almost a judicial picture. It has the idea of kind of going before a judge and pleading your case. Uh, and, and yet this idea of like, hey, what do I have to do to get this fixed? Like, this is, this is I, I, I'm convicted of, of this thing. I'm convicted that I've done wrong. What do I have to do to fix this? And it's this desire that is moving in that direction. That would create, he says, this indignation. This place where we begin to just hate it. Like we hate our sin. Like I hate that. I hate that I did that. That is not okay. I, I, I hate my sin. I hate the devil that, that would you know, tempt me to do that. I hate all that that is. There's an indignation that would make us not treat sin lightly. As if, well, you know, yeah, I probably should you know, control my temper. It's like I hate it when I lose my temper. I hate that. That's, that, that, that. that's an ungodly response. That's something that doesn't picture my Savior. I hate all that that is. It, it's a hatred that then draws us to a place of fear. And there is this emotional response uh, that just feels that. I don't know how to say that better. It is, you guys know fear. It is that flight or fight response where you feel that moment and you look at something and you say, that scared me. That scared me. That, that scares, that I, I feel that. I'm, I'm now aware of that. It's to look at sin and like, that scared me. I mean, it just scared me that that's a part of me. I mean, it scared me that it flowed out of me. I, I, don't, I don't like it. I mean, there's just a holy fear that is a part of that and now it begins to turn. Some have said that when you think about repentance, it's a change of direction. It's a change from uh, moving one direction and going to the other direction, almost a U-turn. It's a U-turn in action, but it's a U-turn in thought. And so we, we're looking at hating sin. Now we begin to have this vehement desire, and it has the idea of, of passionately wanting that which is right. Like, 
I don't want to do wrong. I want to do right. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, I, I'm sorry that I did that. I want to do the right thing. I want to have this place that then would draw us to zeal. And zeal speaks of this fervency, of this passion, of this heart that really would draw us to God. It's like, God, I want you. I want, I, I'm longing to please you. I'm longing uh, to be made right in your sight. And I'm longing to, to have this in your life. And he says at that moment, it's as if you've vindicated yourself. You've now fixed it. If you've walked through this place of repentance, it's now brought this clearing. And Paul kind of just says it this way. He says, you know, he says, in all things, you proved yourselves clear in this matter. You, you, you repented. And, and because you repented, it's done. What a good space. You know, I think about it right now and just want to tell you, this is what God is seeking to do in you all the time. And once more, this isn't just that moment you get saved, though it is, it begins there. It's a lifestyle of repentance, a lifestyle of you dealing with sin and God dealing with sin in your life. Some have said, you know, one of the greatest, you know, spaces that God would draw us in our Christian life in this whole place is that we would treat sin like that game that maybe you played as kids, kind of that hot potato game, you know, kind of thing. Like the moment it gets into your hand, you're going to do your very best to get it out of your hands. It's like, hey, the moment I recognize I'm doing the wrong thing, the moment that that's doing, I want to do this. I say, God, I'm going to run to God and say, God, I I hate this. I hate what it is. And God, I want, how do we fix this? And help me to do right. I want you. And, and there's this beautiful space that God does this. I think about it this way. We were reading in 1 John. Some of you are reading there with us. And there in chapter 1, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What good words. What John says in a word is what we've just you know, talked about in this whole passage in these seven descriptions. To confess your sin is to do everything we just said. God, you're right. I'm wrong. Did the wrong thing. I'm sorry. How do we fix it? How do we make it right? God, I want to do the Help me. In one word, it tells us that it's there, but also please notice. In this space of coming to God, in repenting, there is forgiveness. There's glorious forgiveness. He says he'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us, wash us from all unrighteousness. Don't miss that. Don't miss that this is what this is. This is this place where God would say, hey, how about, I, how about we come out of that? How about I, I help you? How about I bring you into forgiveness? How do I bring you into a, a place that would be good for your life? And this is good. Like, this is a really, really good thing. And Maybe you're needing it right now. Maybe you're here and maybe you're struggling. Maybe you had a really bad week. Maybe you had a really bad day yesterday and part of you is struggling with even repenting because, you know, it's a weird space. Sometimes we, you know, either we don't want to admit it or we try to punish ourselves. you know, like I'm just going to, you know, make myself suffer for a little while. I don't know what that is. But there is this space where you say, God, I want to get right. I want to I come to you and say, God, you're right. I hate it. I hate sin. Turn it away in my life. Turn me to the right thing. Help me choose the right thing. Help me, help me long for that. And there's a space where God would say, hey, you can be forgiven. And Paul is excited for them. He says, I'm not, I'm not happy that you were sad. I'm not, not excited, but I'm rejoicing that your sorrow worked. I'm rejoicing that when you were made sad, it did good in your life. It, it, it brought you to repentance. It brought you into a good space. 
And that is something God is wanting to do all the time with us. God is always wanting to do this in our life, that our life is meant to be a life of repentance, a place where we're dealing with sin, that we're confronting it, that we're finding forgiveness, that we're finding help, and we're finding a space that is this. And so when we look at this again, please hear that this is with you weekly. If I'm doing well at understanding this and helping you understand this, this isn't one of those things you're like, huh, that's interesting. Maybe someday I'll need this. You know, maybe someday in my life, there's some day, you know, in a future, you know, space that I'm going to have to maybe, but it's not, you know, this is all the time. This is, this is one of those places that, it's a, that we deal with it and God works good in our lives, but the key is, again, is understanding it, seeing, hey, this is what God has for us. It's a, a sorrow that is working redemption. When God brings sorrow, when God brings sorrow into our life and conviction, it is never condemnation. He never is seeking to just beat you down and make you feel. It's always like, let's fix that. Let's come out of that. How about I forgive you and restore you and bring you forward? There's a beautiful place of this. If you find yourself on the other side of it, and some of you honestly do, and you actually kind of begin to sit here this morning and feel good about it. You know, you're like, yeah, I'm just such a loser. I'm so terrible. I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible Christian, you know, as if somehow just, you know, kind of repeating these negative things or what God looks for as if you could just stay in some spiritual death instead of saying, God, you're right, but I know that's not what you want to leave me, and I know there's forgiveness today, and I could turn to you and and move towards right, so we absolutely need this. We absolutely need this space where we're able to see the difference and journey to that which is right. So in the midst of this, we're tracking, and so there was this conflict that brought it about. There was this confrontation that Paul had to do, and now we see conviction, and it's a good conviction, but we need to talk about one more thing. One more thing that that Paul's going to unpack in this, not only that there's a good sorrow that leads to conviction, that leads to repentance, that leads us to what God has for our lives. As Paul is talking about this, he adds one other thing. Notice what he says. Verse 12, therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. There's something about this sorrow, this godly repentance, this conviction that that shows care. Now, once more, there's a piece that takes us behind the scene that is really helpful to understand that confrontation that Paul confronted. It wasn't about its effectiveness. He says, I didn't do this because I was wanting that person to repent or for the person that was hurt. That wasn't the motivation. He says, I did this because I wanted you to see God's care. I wanted the love of God to be shown in my life. I wanted that to land in a very good way. Now, that will probably make sense for some of you, but let me kind of toss it out as an illustration in in a way that will help others. If you're a parent here this evening, you probably, this morning, you probably even have a better understanding of this, especially if you had some of those teenage years that your kids went through and maybe some of those hard spaces. I don't know how that worked for your life. I know for me, in walking through some of those days with our kids, there were spaces where, you know, they were doing the wrong thing, and all I could do was do the right thing. And I actually remember sitting down with one of my kids, and they were just like, Dad, why? Why, why, why are you even going to tell me this? Why, why are you going to not let me do this? Because you know I'm going to do the wrong thing. You already know. 
I mean, let's just be clear. You already know I'm making choices that I'm making and I'm not turning from them. So why are you putting restrictions on me? Why are you, you know, trying to do this? You should just let me, let me be. And I remember trying to explain to them what this is. It says it isn't about you responding. It's about me. I, I need to do the right thing. And I love you. I love you too much. I love you too much not to confront you. I love you too much not to say, hey, this is not good. You can't do this in our house. I can't let you be that way because I love you enough to say no. Hey, that's what Paul's saying here. He says, even if it had gone badly, even if they had not received his letter, even if it didn't work and they didn't repent, he still needed to do it because he loved them and he wanted that love to be seen. If we try to process that through, let me give you two sections of scripture that give us windows into this that'll help it land, I hope, in a good way. One of them is in the book of Nehemiah. It's a great section. It's a time of revival. The, turn, the people of the Lord are turning back to him, and, and in the midst of it, they're teaching the Bible. So they read distinctly from the book, the Bible, in the law of God. They gave it sense, and they helped them to understand the reading. It's a great passage that says, hey, they taught the Bible. They helped them understand it, and they helped them apply it. Like, here's how this works for your life. And so the Bible's being taught. Everybody's listening. The Bible's making good landing in their life. But because of that, he says, Nehemiah said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. I mean, you just got to imagine it for a moment. They're crushed. They're crushed by their failures. They're crushed by, I mean, they're, they're reading the Bible and rightly understanding the Bible has brought them to a place of like, wow, I don't do that. I'm not doing the right thing. I mean, and, and they literally find themselves sad. But Nehemiah's like, hey, no, no, don't let that become that which is operative in this whole place. He says, hey, you just need to go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy. To, the Lord, our, to, the, to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hey, I just want to unpack that verse for a moment because it's a fun one. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is one of those verses that maybe some of you have like on a mug or you have it up on your wall, and it's a great one to have. But I just think that for some people who read it without its context, they have no idea what they're actually saying. I mean, it's not like just saying, hey, you should just be happy. You know, don't worry, be happy, you know, kind of thing. That's all you need to do, as if that's what it was. No, the joy he's speaking about is the joy of conviction. Hey, you've been convicted. You've, been, you, you, you've heard the word of God and you're sad and that's a really good thing. It is a really good thing. There's something about just that, that life that God is bringing that at the moment that it happens, there's this space of recognizing that God is doing it for our good and yet he's doing it because he loves us. So that one of the interesting things about that is it actually is a part of that. So there's a joy that should be ours that when we find ourselves godly sad, having a godly sorrow, it's like, oh, this is good. This is a good thing. <laughs> this is a really good thing. Uh, there's joy in recognizing that God is working in my life. And let me give it to you another passage. In Hebrews, it says it this way, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Hey, don't hate it. Don't despise it. Don't despise God confronting you and his word and his spirit showing you that you're doing the wrong thing 
and invite you to do the right thing. Don't despise it. Don't be discouraged. Don't beat yourself up. Don't, don't move into a worldly sorrow over that. No, in the midst of it, know this. God disciplines his kids because he loves us. I wonder if you feel it. I hope so. I hope, I hope I'm just, just emphasizing what you've already discovered. If not, I hope you would discover it. See, if you sit here this morning and even something is convicting you, and you're like, man, I'm not doing great. <laughs> I, need, I, need, I need to do this better. If that would be there in your life, two things are important for you to understand. Hey, God only does this because he wants to do good in your life. He only brings conviction because he's trying to do good. And he's convicting you because he loves you. Because he loves you. And, and there's something about understanding that. Something about that, that you could recognize as God would convict you. It's like, oh, he loves me. That's his motivation. That's the thought behind this. That's what he does. And, and there's something powerful in understanding this. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's no more condemnation. There's no more condemnation. God has taken all that away. If you think God hates you or he's mad at you or his wrath is being poured out on you, you are wrong. He poured that out on Christ. And he looks at you right now, and the reason he is confronting you is because he loves you. It's as if he looks at you and says, I love you. You're my child. I love you too much to leave you that way. Like you, you're doing some things that is destructive to you and destructive to others, and I am going to convict you. I am going to chasten you, not because I'm mad at you, not because I've decided to hate you or, or, or destroy you. I love you, and, and I'm going to do good in your life. I'm going to do good that would seek to bring that about in your life. That's the heart of God. That is what He does, and so much so that you could recognize that. I don't know about you. I'm not always there, but I am there a lot. I like it. I actually like when he convicts me. And let's just be honest, he convicts me a lot. Uh, there's still so much that needs fixed in my life. There's still so much that he is working on, but I really like it when he convicts me. I really like it because I, I recognize he loves me. And he's doing something in my life because he loves me, because he cares about me. He cares about what he wants for my life. And I know he's never doing that because he's mad at me. He's never doing that because he's decided to pour his wrath on me. This is never mine. He's doing it because he loves me, and that's a good and glorious space. In fact, uh, the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say, if you endure this chastening, this disciplining from God, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we've all become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Hey, it's a really great verse, but let me just unpack it with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are doing this. If you're a follower of Jesus, God loves you too much to let you stay in your sin, and he will chasten you. He will chasten, he chastens all of his kids. There's not anybody who is his kid that he doesn't chasten, so this is universal for every one of us who are his kids. But if you're here this morning, you're like, Jim, I don't even know what they're talking about. It doesn't happen for me. I don't really feel that. I don't really feel, you know, conviction. I don't really feel, you know, the Holy Spirit. I don't feel the Bible doing that. Then he says... You're not a Christian. You're not his kid. Because if you don't go through discipline, if he's not chastening you, then it's a mark that you haven't surrendered your life to him yet. 
He's inviting you to be his kid. I think about how it would tell us uh, there in John, as many as received him, received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, it's of God. And he's just telling you right here, if you're here outside of this, and, and you don't know this, then he's telling you, you need to get saved. And he just says, as many who would receive him, to them he's giving you the right to become his, his kids, to, to become him to save and him to draw you into that. And if that is you today, we just want to preach the gospel to you. We just want to tell you, hey, there's hope for you, that God would send his son to you and you could become a follower of him. You could become his kid today. And if that's you, we invite you to that. But if you are his kid, well, then he disciplines you. Because he, dis- he disciplines all of his kids. It goes on to simply say, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Being sad will never be the emotion that we choose. Yeah, I just like being sad. It's great. Sadness is one of my, no, we don't like being, we don't enjoy being sad, but it's good. It's good if God is bringing it. It's painful, but it's going to do good because he's doing it for our good. He's doing it to, to bring us profit, it says in the verse before this. He's doing us to grow us in Him. He's doing us to, to be trained by it, and, and, and it's always meant to be that. It would be an amazing thing if out of this time this morning, you would understand this. See, there are probably two great lessons that I have done my best to present to you this morning, and let me just state them clearly, and then we'll begin to pull to a close. Hey, you need to understand the difference between con- condemnation and conviction. It's a daily battle. It's a daily battle, and if you can't get that clear, you're going to be confused. You're going to think God's mad at you. You're going to think that, he's, that, that the condemnation that would beat you down is his voice. That is not his voice. That's our adversary. God is convicting you, but when he's convicting you, he's always looking at you and saying, let's fix that. I can forgive you. And I can draw you back. Like, let's come this direction. Like, I, I, I'm a God who loves you and do that. So you need to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. If you can get that clear, you'll do really good. But if you know conviction, then there's two other things you should know. Every time he convicts you, every time he's doing it, it's because he loves you and he's trying to do good in your life. It's because he loves you and he cares about you and he's trying to, to, to bring good change and transformation in your life. And you should be someone that embraces that. And here's the fun thing. Again, I'm just kind of trying to speak it from my own heart. Even without being changed, I know he, at that moment there's something really good. Even before it even works fruit into my life. Like, God, I'm so glad that you love me. I'm so glad that you're working in my life. I'm so glad that I'm not alone. I'm so glad that you are, you are working. There's moments that makes that so good. And if that could be a part of who you are, it would be this amazing place. It would be a place, instead of believing, as some of you do, because you can't understand the difference between condemnation and conviction, some of you really believe God hates you. You believe he's mad at you. You believe he's frustrated with you. You believe he's looking at you and saying, you're a loser, you're terrible. You've believed the wrong voice. But God looks at you and says, I love you. I love you. I gave my son for you. And how about we save? How about we fix this? How about you come this direction? If you'll confess your sins, I am faithful and just, God says. We'll forgive that. 
We'll wash that all away. And we'll work good so that you could be fully vindicated, so you could be fully brought out of that. That would be a good and a glorious space for you. And it's meant to be a space for every one of us. So let's close there. You got your Bibles, and wherever that is, you can close them. And I just end with this thought that Jesus said, hey, blessed are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. Hey, that's what he's inviting us to. He's telling us there's this good space of having a godly grief. So I just want to invite you to do that. Maybe, maybe it's what you're doing right now. So quietly between you and the Lord, I just want to give you a moment to pry. Maybe you're outside of this. And in this moment of prayer, it's your moment to repent and ask Jesus to save you. He says he will. We invite you now to give your life to him. And so as a moment as we take this before God, let's just go before him as a heavenly father and allow this to work good in our lives. You take a moment to do that. I'll do the same and we'll come back and close in worship in just a moment. God, I thank you that you're a God who saves. And you looked on this broken world and all of our sin and you sent your son to die on the cross, pay the full price for our sin by one sacrifice forever so that the blood of Christ would cleanse us from all sin. I pray for any that are outside of that, that right now they're whole approach to sin and its sorrow is a road that's taking them to death, eternal death. God, I pray for rescue. I pray for turning. I pray for repentance. Draw these to you. Father, yet for those of us who are yours, I pray that you would make very clear the difference between the condemnation of, our, of the devil and the conviction that you bring into our lives. Help us to see the difference, to know them, to turn away from Satan's condemnation, but embrace your conviction for our good because you love us and you're at work inside of us. Thank you. Teach us. Teach us this and bring us into it. Bring us into what you have because, God, you do care about us. You do love us. And I pray that you would grow us in being a repenting people who joyfully walk in that process of repentance and sanctification. Yes, please. Grow us in your ways for our good, for your good, for your glory. We ask for that now. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. May God bring you and teach you how to have godly sorrow. Hey, if you have questions, we're here. If you need to know Jesus, come up and talk to us afterwards. We'd love to be a part of it. But let's close in worship. So why don't you stand as we just recognize our good God and his good ways in our lives. I just want to bless you in his name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.